We have an update. Oh shit, that reminds me. I should stop the rat's wheel before we get into this. That's like the most Eastern European thing you could ever say, by the way. <laughs> Good job, buddy. <laughs> Fuck you guys. So I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, we're, we're, we're not going to demand it yet. We're still at the encouraging part. Welcome to Booked, where two guys and sometimes their other friend <laughs> tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're going to be talking about tonight is A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Um, joining us tonight, as Livia so subtly uh, hinted at, is um, a longtime friend of the podcast, Jesse Lawrence, um, who has joined us as far back as our, uh, what was the name of the episode, Livia? You know how terrible my memory is, right? <laughs> like you just put me on the spot. It was the, um, I, I have no idea, the Spooktacular. No, 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 the spooktacular, but for the first one, the, oh. the zombie spectacular. I don't remember what it was called. Remember? Uh, yeah, I, I know. I, I, I remember what you're talking about. I have no idea what we called that. Anyway, uh, extravaganza, some kind of extravaganza. Anyway, uh, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is Jesse's been a long time uh, a friend of the podcast. Uh, Jesse, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me on, guys. All right. Um, I'm going to read a quick bio. Uh, for the for for the author Paul Trimbley, and then uh, Livius is going to tell can you. Can I can I interject for a second? Yeah, it's only a quick bio because I had to edit like ninety percent of it out. If you actually look at it on Amazon, he there's like three paragraphs. He just goes on and on saying like the weirdest things, and it's really funny. <laughs> but for the Wait, sake of brevity, did he in the original bio? Because I don't see it in here. Did it mention being published in the book anthology? No, and that's almost what his bio said. Is Paul Tremblay was featured in the book anthology. Okay. Was it? But I actually decided to leave those other credits alone. All right. Well, in addition to the book anthology, uh, Paul Tremblay is the author of A Head Full of Ghosts, which is great because that's what we're talking about tonight. He's also the author of the novels The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and Floating Boy and the Girl Who Couldn't Fly, co-written by, with uh, Stephen Graham Jones. All right, here is uh, the synopsis for the, the book we're going to be reviewing tonight, A Head Full of Ghosts. The lives of the Barretts, a normal suburban New England family, are torn apart when 14-year-old Marjorie begins to display signs of acute schizophrenia. To her parents' despair, the doctors are unable to stop Marjorie's descent into madness. As their stable home devolves into a house of horrors, they reluctantly turn to a local Catholic priest for help. Father Wanderly suggests an exorcism. He believes the vulnerable teenager is the victim of demonic possession. He also contacts a production company that is eager to document the Barrett's plight. With John, Marjorie's father, out of work for more than a year and the medical bills looming, the family agrees to be filmed and soon find themselves the unwitting stars of The Possession, a hit reality television show. When events in the Barrett household explode in tragedy, the show and the shocking incidents it captures become the stuff of urban legend. Fifteen years later, a best-selling writer interviews Marjorie's younger sister, Mary, as she recalls those long-ago events that took place when she was just eight years old. Long-buried secrets and painful memories that clash with what was broadcast on television begin to surface, and a mind-bending tale of psychological horror is unleashed, raising vexing questions about memory and reality, science and religion, and the very nature of evil. All right, uh, I guess that's good, so I'm going to say keep reading. Yeah, that's uh, that pretty much covers it. Uh, I, when you know, when I first read about what this book was going to be about, it wasn't like a proper synopsis. But when I heard reality show, the first thing that I started thinking about was that it was going to be kind of funny. I don't know why reality shows to me mean like comedy, intended or not. But there's certainly nothing funny about this book. I agree with that. <laughs> I was kind of concerned about it coming off, maybe not funny, but campy. I was thinking it might end up being a little bit campy, especially with um, like with swallowing a donkey's eye was was a little more on the satirical side. So I was expecting it to be more like that. And there's nothing like that anywhere near this story. Jesse, do you have any thoughts? Okay, yeah, I don't recall if I ever read the synopsis. I remember hearing mention that this was a a secular exorcism novel, and that's pretty much all I knew. I was kind of like, that sounds like exactly the type of thing I've been waiting for. Because I haven't read a lot of Exorcist books. Actually, probably zero. I never even read The Exorcist. But I've seen a million films that are possession stories, exorcism stories. And they really, really don't jive that much with me because they're all kind of the same deal over and over again. It's like every story is exactly the same. So I had big hopes for this one and it paid off, definitely. 
Yeah, there was definitely that concern of, um, oh, well, this is just kind of retreading territory that we've already kind of explored time and time again. But um, I'd say even from early on, it's pretty evident that um, that there's there's a level of uncertainty about how much of a chance there is that there's actually like a demonic possession uh, instead of something just like a, like a, someone with like a mental uh, instability. Yeah, and it's told in a really interesting perspective. So to get a little bit into um, the flow of the story, um, we meet Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, which was short for Meredith, if I'm correct. Yes? I think so. Okay. And um, she is meeting with a, with a best-selling author who's writing a nonfiction story or nonfiction book about the, the possession, the TV show, and, and the events behind it, the lives of the, the Barretts. And uh, pretty early on, um, Mary mentions that she may be um, is somewhat of an unreliable narrator, not intentionally, but in the fact that she's recalling things from when she was eight years old. Now, I, uh, I have a terrible memory, as I already mentioned once this episode, um, but God damn it, I don't remember shit from when I was eight years old. So I can only imagine how unreliable I would be trying to recount this story now 15 years uh, down the road. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Um, that was something that I actually thought about multiple times while reading it was, I, I can't imagine trying to pull one memory from that age, um, even if it was something like a birthday party. I don't think I could do it if I was like if a gun was to my head. Well, now and now to be fair, that um, you know, I guess if it was really big, important stuff, kind of along the lines of this, I, I might have some. Like, I just thought about when you said birthday party, and I thought oh, those are so inconsequential that you know you probably don't commit it to memory. But if somebody was like, you know, head was spinning around on their shoulders, not that this, this happens in the book, but then they were puking green stuff at you, spider walking up some stairs, eh, then, you know, that might be something that sticks out a little bit more. I think what I kind of wondered with that was, like you said, if this was something like this happened to you, it would probably stand out and you're more likely to remember it more. But there's also the aspect of trauma. And even if you don't want to do it, your brain might bury stuff away or hide it and obscure it or alter it just to protect itself. And with the blog aspect of the book, I wonder how much of her adult memory is informed by the constant rewatchings of the reality show versus her childhood experience. Yeah. So um, not to step away from that, but to kind of set the tone a little bit more. Um, the book opens up, like the synopsis said, where Mary is talking to a best-selling author who's writing uh, a book about basically what happened uh, with with uh, Mary's family. And so we get the story from the perspective of eight-year-old Mary, like as she remembers it from the present. So as we're reading it, she's basically telling us what eight-year-old Mary went through from the eye through the eyes of her memory of eight-year-old Mary, which uh, essentially for, for a topic that, or for a book topic that's so, you know, steeped in horror, we have such an innocent uh, perspective that it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of weird, but um, I really dug the Mary character a lot. Yeah. I think that other than the interesting fact of the, I don't know, selective memory, the unreliable memory or whatever, what we have is the story told through someone's eyes who's really, really lovable. So we're, you know, kind of as Rob alluded to, we're not getting, we're getting the story from 23, right? 23-year-old Mary, but really told through the eyes of her eight-year-old self. And talk about just kind of a heartfelt, adorable little girl. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember the last time I thought someone was so goddamn cute in a book. So like the opposite of the Duke movie on, on this one then? Yeah, fuck that kid in the Duke. I, I love, listen, I love the movie, but yeah, there was nothing relatable about that kid. Like there was nothing that, that endeared you to him. And Mary from literally page one of her eight-year-old self in this book is just adorable. I, I, I'm sure I have a quote. We read this in a paper book, so I don't know how likely I'm going to find exactly what I'm looking for. But at one point, she like sets up this like security system in her, in her bedroom because she, she wants to keep her, or know if her sister is sneaking into her room or not. And she constructs a cardboard laptop that she then consults for footage. Like it's the most adorable <laughs> ever. Oh God, yeah. so precious. I've got a quote from page one already. So you're right. Right away, you're just with this character. And that's usually kind of rare to have something on the first page that grabs you that way. Do you want to read it or are you going to save it for later? 
Um, yeah, I'll just read it now. Get it out of the way. Um, it's kind of thinking of this too when we said this wasn't funny, and yeah, it's not a funny book in that sense. But Paul's got some good humor in his writing, like character humor going on. So, page one. Marjorie, Marjorie would call me a tease and chase me around the house trying to pull the wax string and I would scream and cry because it was fun and because I was afraid if I let her pull out one tooth, she wouldn't be able to help herself and she'd pull them all out. Yeah, there's a lot of that kid logic and he does it in such an authentic way. I don't know. I mean, I know Paul has children, um, so I wonder if that kind of informed um, the you know the writing style, but like... Uh, it, it just even goofy stuff. I don't have a quote about it, but at one point an adult says something about giving someone a piece of their mind or something. And then she immediately imagines or uh, talks about like how she pretended to give her father like an actual piece of her brain, like pull it out of her head and hand it to him. And like, it's that kind of innocent, you know, perspective that I thought was really pulled off very well, but I have to imagine it was really difficult at times to write. I thought you were going to say Paul Tremblay's really childlike mind, you know. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a good job this guy. If you ever talk to him, he's just like this in person. Um, yeah. So really, she's the one who starts to uncover for us um, perhaps some of Marjorie's symptoms. So it starts, you know, pretty innocently enough with her chasing down her sister for story time where they have this... Um, you know, this ritual that, where they go through and they, they make up stories out of these children's books and kind of draw their own versions. And, and Mary is super, super into this. Um, but what she discovers really is that Marjorie has made up her own story and that it's um, far more um, unsettling and terrifying than the kind of cutesy stories they, they usually make up. And that's kind of the first inkling we get that something may not quite be kosher with, with uh, Marjorie anymore. And, and the story unfolds in a way where as she's picking up more clues about things aren't usually as they are, as they usually would be with Marjorie, she's also picking up clues about the family probably already knows about it and is already kind of doing something about it. Like um, she knows that, you know, they took Marjorie to see her doctor, but she doesn't know what that means. Um, and, and so as the story progresses and, the problem becomes more obvious in the house. She also kind of gradually learns that the family's been trying to deal with it and it's having its impact and stuff like that. Plus the family's going through their own issues with the father being laid off and the money situation, you know, gradually becoming worse and worse as, as time goes on. So it's like this kind of perfect storm of shit going on in the family that she at her age is having a difficult time kind of understanding um, but you know, she's not protected from it. No. And you know, she, she loves and I don't know, really looks up to her big sister and she, all she wants is their relationship to stay the way it, it, it was. Um, but things get weirder and weirder and her sister gets creepier and creepier. <laughs> um, and Mary, you know, just kind of wants to brush it all kind of under the rug and she just wants, you know, she wants what she had back, you know, this, this, loving big sister that she got to play with and spend time with. And instead she's more constantly, I, I kind of felt like she was what the right word is almost assaulted by, you know, these things that are, that are going on with her sister. Her sister starts to say meaner and nastier and scarier things to her. Um, and, and I think he did a really good job with, you know, I'm terrified of my big sister. And then it's like the next day and I want to go see if she wants to have story time, you know, because I think that that's pretty accurate for, for, you know, for an eight year old. It's an interesting age that the characters are in here too, because even before we know that Marjorie's maybe having some mental issues, that's, she's at the age, I, I believe, like, was she freshman in high school or something? So she's at the age where maybe she would pull away from a younger sibling because she's growing up, she's changing, she's, you know, getting into teenager things or, you know, hormonal and everything. So who knows what's going on? So it could go either way. I mean, it's like, maybe this is just <clears throat> teenage brattiness, you know, like, Hey, little kid sister, get away from me. But it ends up being more. So there's a lot of wiggle room there. Yeah. It's something I hadn't considered, but that's a good point. Um, and that's, that's kind of thematic with um, the uncertainty of the book where you don't know whether this is, something extra weird and, and we, uh, of, of about this particular situation, or if it's just like, um, 
reality exerting itself on a situation and the 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 reactions that we see are are the unnatural part of of the uh, part of the equation um before we go too far can we talk about some of the creepy shit that happens like the growing things i think is a really good example of like the creepy factor of of the book yeah the the growing things it's weird she comes up with this story and these just things start growing out of nowhere and it's new york you know and she says you know when when the growing things started growing there it meant they could grow anywhere because new york is so big so there's this problem that's existing it comes out of nowhere and it's a powerful force like just it kind of takes over everyone and everything there's nothing they can do about it so people start to start to feel helpless like, you know, this thing's crushing them and the growing things, they swallow everything up. And then it gets to the point where it's so out of control that people become desperate because they don't know what to do. So then they just start throwing anything and everything at it to try and, I don't know, kill it maybe. Like, oh, these are growing things. Like, let's throw chemicals on it or let's light it on fire. But nothing nothing defeats the growing things. The, and then there's a specific family that's mentioned in Marjorie's story that... Uh, uh, at one point, so these growing things are like almost like green, like I saw it in my mind as vines or whatever, big, thick, creepy mm-hmm. shit. Um, and uh, it's a family where it's a mother and a father and two two kids, I'm assuming both daughters, um, in a house. And Marjorie tells the story where like the father, like the mother had was supposedly gone away, but then one of the kids goes in the basement and finds the mother had been buried because the father killed the mother. So this is really heavy shit to lay on an eight-year-old, um, especially considering the family so closely resembled the family, you know, the Barrett family that we're, we're reading about. Doesn't she also say that the two two girls' names are Marjorie and Mary? Yeah, yeah, there's that. <laughs> That's all. That would freak me out, yeah. And to be fair, she uses the end of that story as a warning um, to Mary, and she tells her several times throughout the course of the book to remember how that story ended, to remember the two sisters. So there's kind of that ominous feeling of, you know, where are we going to see this come into play, or are we going to see this come into play, you know, later later in the book? It's a great, great mirror to a mirroring device for... Um... Uh, for Marjorie, for her her condition and what's going on, it's very much like like mental illness. This stuff can just come out of nowhere, and no one knows why it happens or how it happens or what to do about it. And it you, it starts to swallow you up, and you can't really do anything about it, and you don't know how to get out of that mess. And so you go see doctors, and they're just like, "Well, here, take these pills." Oh, that's not working. So take these pills instead. It's like let's just throw everything at it. It's like take this or take that. Well, maybe it'll work. Oh man, you just blew my mind. So we um, we kind of progress in in what um, you know it's pretty standard fashion. So we see her lashing out more. We see her um, do weird things happen. You know, she Mary wakes up and things are changed in her room, and you know, and then she hears a fight where Marjorie's being super disrespectful to her parents, which isn't a thing that that happens normally. And we kind of progress to this one particular incident i'm not gonna go into detail about i think it's just super well written and incredibly creepy and eerie but it's basically the final straw and um they uh, there's a little bit of a backstory um dad used to have religion kind of lost religion went back to religion um and seems like in large part due to these things that were going on with his daughter and he um he brings in the the priest um, to to kind of to to do an exorcism or or I'm sorry to kind of consult I guess at that point they're not really at exorcism level but he gets uh, Father Wanderly involved in uh, in the situation hoping that you know some 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 God some get some Jesus in your life girl you know would uh will help the situation. Um, yeah, but it's and it's not too long after that that the uh, reality TV show is introduced because. The, the money situation is getting forever, you know, worse and worse. And um, just the introduction of prayer into the household doesn't seem to be doing much. Um, but through connections through the priest uh, to some kind of big conservative, like deep pockets, um, they get hooked up with a television, uh, like studio or whatever that wants to do this reality show. They agree to it. They get a kind of big paycheck up front. And then essentially the TV show moves in. And everything that's going on now is happening on camera, which interestingly 
brings a little bit of normalcy back to Mary's life because she has other people that she can interact with whose lives aren't consumed by the Marjorie situation the way that her family's lives are consumed by it. And that's all we're going to talk about because the rest of it is just too fucking creepy. (laughs) 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 Yeah, there's some messed up up stuff in here, man. (laughs) Now, before we go too far uh, without revealing... Um, what we think happened in the end. I just want to know if you guys think that there's a clear ending or if it's unclear. Totally unclear. Uh, I'm split. I want to. I want to go with clear. You know, I think. <laughs> I think by definition, if you're not sure if it's clear, <laughs> or unclear, unclear, just. Okay, we'll go with unclear. See, I thought it was very clear, but then I listened to Paul Tremblay recently just um, was uh, interviewed on This Is Horror, the podcast, our great friends who, by the way, they haven't sent us our award yet, our physical award for 2014, so they're kind of on my shit list a little bit, but uh, um, his interview on there made it sound like he, he was making it sound like he wanted it to be unclear, but I thought it was very cut and dry at the end, and maybe I got a little hoodwinked. I um, you, you know what my question is for him, right, Rob? Uh, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you? First of all, <laughs> second of all, um, kind of the same thing. What I, I all I want to know is, and I haven't listened to this is horror episode, and he may address this. I want to know if he knows. Oh, he, of course, because that's your always your question. It's always my question because it's it's interesting. Because like I said, I I thought it was unclear. He clearly tried to make it unclear. I'm, I'm assuming based on what you said, but the question is: Does it? Does does he know in his mind? Is is there a cut and dry answer on any of this? So, without again giving anything away, I guess what we're trying to say is the ending might be a little unclear. And I, <laughs> but but being the being the the person that I am, this is one of the few times where I was totally okay with that. Yeah, I'll go along with that. Um, that that can be frustrating or unsatisfying, but I don't know. Let's let's just really quickly try and figure this out because I still want to I still want to salvage this and like switch my answer back to no, it's clear, it's clear, it's clear. I, I'm not you know <laughs> giving giving the wrong definition there because like what Rob said, he's like I think this is cut and dried. It's clear. So I'm I'm assuming there's the one thing at the end that makes it one or the other, and that thing that can make it unclear. I think is circumstantial. And I think there's an explanation for that, like there was for a similar instance in the house. So I think it's just circumstantial, but works really, really well when presented ambiguously. Man, we have never dodged a subject more deftly than just then. Um, can, can the three of us talk about this off, off the air for a minute? Yeah. All right. So. All right, so we just had a big discussion where we talked about a bunch of awesome stuff that we'd love to have you guys listen to, but uh, it would ruin the book for you, so we're not going to add it in, and um, now you can just be jealous that you weren't here talking to us. But um, one thing that I I want to introduce, because um, this pretty much directly addresses the um, whether there was an actual possession or not, is there was a blog element to the book, and essentially what it is is there's a person who's writing um, blog entries throughout the course of the book, kind of interspersed through the, through the, through the flashback story, uh, talking about the possession, uh, the television show, and then the backstory of it. Um, from the opinion and perspective that it's completely not a hoax, but it wasn't real, that it was essentially someone who um, was suffering, or well, that it was um, uh, it was a fiction that was created for the television show, basically. Um, not, so, um, the not realness from this blog is that, um, the television show, television show created it for television, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, I think so. And the blog itself is called the last final girl, which is a Stephen Graham Jones novel. And (laughs) Stephen Graham Jones is also, uh, is it a math teacher? Who's really short? (laughs) Oh wait, no, he's just bad at math, but he's a a tutor or something yes. okay, as a tutor i also read somewhere and i believe this was um I, I believe this was paul saying that 
a story in the book was also based on a short story by another author. And I'm wondering if um, the growing things was a, maybe a Stephen Graham Jones short story. No. <laughs> Sorry. We neglected to introduce Jesse as the foremost authority on Stephen Graham Jones things. Yeah. Thankfully uh, we have a Stephen Graham Jones historian on the podcast. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I know Paul said that and it must've been in a Facebook post or something. And then maybe when I saw, caught the multiple Stephen Graham Jones references, maybe I transposed it to, to it being his or something along those lines. I'm if sure it is, if it is, I'm really failing here, but my guess would be that it's either a John Langan story so I know those two are friends and whatnot, or a Laird Barron story because the name of one of Laird's books is also mentioned in this book. It's it's like part of the dialogue or something, or it's in a sentence. Well, there you go. The yeah, the blog mentions actually the blog part of it also mentions a ton of different possession uh, books and and TV show or not TV shows, movies that kind of thing. Um, and there was one part where. Um, there was a vague reference, and this is what I thought you were talking about, Livius, was there was a vague reference to a story being written by someone who's a smaller author. Um, I didn't catch the specific reference, but I think it was talking about someone that is kind of in Paul's, you know, literary community, sphere of influence. Could be. That could is be. That, is that the Ian Rogers one? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Okay, because he mentions... I think that might be it, um, where he's talking about the the Oscar-winning film editor, Ian Rogers, who oh, made, yeah. made a movie or whatever, but the name of the movie is the name of a book that Ian Rogers in real life wrote for Cheesing, which Paul has been uh, published by. That That makes sense, then. That's probably what the reference I didn't get. All right. Zany hijinks ensue. With the um, <laughs> with the um, with the reality show and and uh, the the story um, it tapers off short <laughs> shortly after um, the reality show is kind of um, not a thing anymore. Um, I, I feel like we've talked too much about the story in some ways, but I want to assure people that you don't have the half of it. So that's really just what I want to say is because I feel like, man, like we really covered so much about this and I'm thinking we haven't even touched the surface of the story. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when, before, before we started the, the review was this is one of those books where I want to talk about the 20% of the book. That is the 80% of like the story. And we're going to talk about the 80% of the book. That's the 20% of the story that kind of thing. There we go. Rob is, Rob has very clearly been involved in some, um, like like uh, team building exercises, like the eighty twenty rule and stuff. Like <laughs> maybe get into seventy twenty ten. There you go. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. I think that all adds up to a hundred. We'll have to ask. Uh, we'll have to ask a math teacher. I can break it down for it. So there's a there's a in in, uh, in adult learning. Um, the the kind of general idea is that that learning is broken down into seventy twenty ten. Seventy percent of the time you're learning by doing, like just by you know doing what you're like doing 20% is done in classrooms. Like, you know, like a formal teaching environment. Uh, no, no, no. 20% is done by coaching. So someone else is telling you what to do. And 10% is a formal uh, classroom environment. Yeah. There you go. Crickets. <laughs> <Yeah>, exactly. <laughs> I was just wondering if anyone else heard the weird, the weird sounds that are going on right now. Is that more motorcycles or those? those <laughs> motor- Here's what happens. Those the growing things. That's oh no. Every time a motorcycle goes by Rob's place, probably about seven to ten minutes later, which is impossible, <laughs> the same motorcycle drives by here. <laughs> if you time them, they're usually about seven minutes apart, and I don't understand how it works, but it works. It's our motorcycle courier service. I sent something to Livius. Yeah. Oh, is that the new Livizon <laughs> delivery method? Yeah, yeah we, that's... Took, we took a page out of Ro- the Rolling Stones uh, book, and we hired the Hell's Angels to be our, our delivery service. It can't go wrong. I think that uh, this is probably a good time to move into uh, some quotes. What do you guys think? 
Let's I love books. <clears throat> I've got a four. I've got four. This first quote that I have is toward uh, the beginning of the book, and it's when Mary starts to... It's pretty obvious that something's going on with Marjorie, and Mary's really starting to feel like the freaky things that are going on. Um, this is her talking about what's going on with Marjorie. She screamed like I've never heard someone scream before or since. Her hyperactive pitch was layered and schizophrenic, imploding down into a singularity, then going big bang, expanding and exploding all over everything. These dizzying changes in her voice were instantaneous and hallucinatory, as if she were somehow atonally harmonizing with herself. I've never heard a scream so elaborated like that before, Livius or or Jesse. I mean, this thing is just chock full of really, really solid writing. And um, I, I would probably have 25, 30 quotes if I didn't read this in the paper format. Print books. Print books. Um, something we didn't talk about at all. And there's a song that plays my kind of important part, I guess, in this book. Um, when the first mention of it comes up, it is done so well. And it literally sent chills up and down my spine. Now, I don't know that everybody is going to get the reference. I'm not going to talk about the song itself or it's really its importance or anything. But for people, you know, quote unquote, in the know, probably one of the best. It reminded me of when I read Tommy Knocker's 20-ish years ago. And there's in there one of the most brilliant, creepiest kind of crossovers that, that I, I've ever read. And it's, um, there's two kids, um, you know, they, the whole story of Tommy Knockers is a sailing spaceship is basically kind of brainwashing all these people in town and they have to run everything on batteries, blah, blah, blah. At any rate, they can't leave the atmosphere that the spaceship has created in the town. So they take two teenagers to they're the youngest and strongest ones and they send them. And of course it all takes place in Maine, but they send them to a nearby town to get more batteries and they're starting to not feel well and they're feverish because they're outside their atmosphere. And at one point they drive, they're driving down the street and I think it was the boy looks up in his rearview mirror and he hallucinates a clown climbing out of a sewer as they're driving through Derry, which is the town where it takes place. And this hit me pretty much like that did. So sorry for the real long explanation there, but, um, so my part isn't about that, but it's that um, Marjorie is, is humming this song and, and it's kind of going, you know, there's a kind of a, a good portion of a chapter about it. And I just want to read the last paragraph. Marjorie still hummed the song in her room. I sat listening and then I hummed along with that simple but heartbreaking melody. I dangled a foot in one of the sunroom's fading sunbeams. I wondered if I would still be able to hum that song when I didn't have a tongue. I decided that I would. Yeah, dude. Damn good writing. Um, do you, you don't want to talk about the song? I don't know. I mean, it, it caught me so well. You know what I mean? That I don't know. I mean, maybe I spoiled it just by mentioning it, but we can, I guess, if you want. Hmm. See, that's the thing. I don't know if people are going to, like you said, I don't know if people would know the song enough to like understand the gravity of it, but we've, all right, we won't say what it is, but we've talked about it before on the podcast. And, um, the significance of it and how fucking weird it is. And so like the moment that was, that I knew what he was talking about, I was like, Oh, this is fucking creepy. Yep. Jesse, are you familiar with that song prior to its explanation in the book? I'm actually lost on this one. So I'm kind of wondering what the song is. Well, off, we'll go off on the record. For, yeah. Yeah. Jesse, you have quotes, I believe. Yes. I've got, Quite a few. In fact, I made all these notes. I, because we all read paper books, I, I got the notebook out and started doodling things and writing my notes. I even have sections that say, you know, these two pages, all of it really, but, you know, we're not going to go that far here. So I think I'll just, and if any of this gets too spoilery, I'm assuming it's just going to be cut out automatically, but there's so much great writing in here. And I just really, it's such a quotable book. This one here, um, some of them, I, I'll do the ones that I made comments on, probably, like this one. Actually, I am possessed. Only I'm possessed by something so much older and cooler than Satan. And then I wrote, how metal is that? That is like the most metal thing. You're exactly, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's got the little, the little, what is it, the like M with the, like the little backslash forward slash above it. <laughs> exactly. Um, my turn? Yeah. 
this this quote definitely demonstrates like the kind of preciousness of Mary. Um, someone that she had just met from the TV crew, I believe, said something about her giving the boys trouble. Um, I don't think it. I don't know if I don't remember. If it was oh, she's going to give the boys trouble or uh, don't give the boys trouble. I don't remember the the context, but that's kind of the idea. And uh, the quote goes, I imagine being at the playground and handing out little black bags to all the kids, not just the boys. They opened them and found little hard candies inside, each poisoned with trouble. Fucking hell, man. How could you make an eight-year-old's thought such a great quote? Mm-hmm. Dude, I, I, I had that one as well. That was that was brilliant. So, um, This is a little bit, it's the tail end of, um, and I, I actually took a picture of this because it was a shorter one, so I actually kind of capture it on my phone and still make it readable. So I don't know, this. It, it's not that far into the book, but it, it's another... It follows another admission that maybe her memory isn't, um, you know, she's just not as reliable. Her memory isn't as reliable as we think. So the, I'm, I'm doing this mostly for, for the writing and kind of the thought behind it, but I want to set this up. What I remember is us eating dinner at the kitchen table, sitting at our four points on the compass. We were contemplative and quiet, unsure of what was happening, unsure of what to do, even after it ended. I'll always remember the four of us sitting around the kitchen table, placed like dolls at an imaginary tea party. So good. Having trouble picking between these two here. Oh, wait, I lost my pages. This is what happens when you aren't going digital, I assume, or why you guys like digital. You never lose your materials. I personally had to, I was taking photos of the pages with my phone, and then I transcribed from the photos onto our notes. So I went from like one kind of, in between digital and not digital format into a full digital. That's my process. That's a really good idea. Okay, I found I found one of them. This is actually from the Growing Things story. What do we do if it isn't dead outside the door? What do we do if it is? I thought that was terribly mm-hmm. creepy. Yeah, dude. Yeah, it is. Yep. Uh, this quote actually... I just liked the way that it read, um, but the more that I thought about it while other people were reading their notes, uh, the more that I think there's actually something to this, maybe subconsciously from the part of, of Paul. Um, but this is farther on in the book. Um, and it's just a quick little thing, but and I'll, I'll explain afterwards. But here's the quote. Tony and Jen, who are um, crew members, Uh, Tony and Jen and their cameras buzzed into the room like the flies on the wall that they'd become. So this is one of the instances where we see the adult perspective kind of creeping in, not so much like the, the child perspective. And um, in the, it's kind of got an artistic flow to it that um, makes me think of, uh, it kind of reveals something about the grown up Mary that, um, in the book is significant. Once you read it, you kind of understand. You guys might know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to do one more because this is a little longer and I kind of talked about this. So when I said early on in the book, you just become so endeared to her. This is mid Mary setting up her security system. So I'm going to go, this is probably going to be about 10, 12 lines. I guess I'm going to pick it up just midway through this paragraph somewhere. Um, the belt had just enough slack that my bedroom door opened so only someone my size could wiggle safely through. I also balanced an empty plastic orange juice jug on top of the slightly open door so that it leaned against the door frame. If the door opened beyond the constraints of my robe belt, the jug would crash to the ground or better yet, on the door opener's head. No way Marjorie would sneak in without getting stuck or making enough of a ruckus to be heard by me. It didn't feel 100% safe, so I built motion-detecting surveillance cameras and a laptop computer out of cereal boxes. I spent Sunday morning conducting quite quite a few background checks on one Miss Marjorie Barrett. Oh, the things that I found! How is this not the cutest kid ever? And there are other parts where she goes to a room and she's not sure, so she checks the surveillance. Yep. On the there, cereal boxes to see there, if anything happens. There's another part to that where um, they uh, she's with her mom and they're going into her room kind of in a hurry. And um, the jug falls on her mom. And <laughs> she's so worried about explaining it that she starts to explain it to her mom. But she doesn't realize that, like, in the context of the greater story, that it's, like, the least consequential thing in the entire 
it's so adorable where she's like, oh, no, now I have to explain my security system. And, and the mom just doesn't even like fucking notice. It was, it was great. It was it, that was so authentic to me. Yep. Just do you want to wrap it up with Rob? You're done, right? You're out of quotes. Yes. I have one more quick one, but okay. it's kind of goofy. And it's the Stephen Graham Jones. Update. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't even know yeah. that actually a quote from the book. Yeah. Um, OK, so I'll do one. After sure. Jesse. Then we'll OK. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do. I'll do another one here. I've got got a couple related ones highlighted. This should kind of explain it all. This is from the the last final blog, the last final girl blog section, or one of them. <clears throat> and it's kind of a weird one with the the typeset or the font or whatever. Okay, she wore makeup, tight clothing, and in the masturbation scene, no clothing, but oh, she had on a few digitally blurred pixels. And then with this is spelled out, but there's a line slashed through the rest of this to protect the poor audience from her nasty lady parts, which I think is um, some good social commentary, but it's also relative to the story because we're seeing, reading all this nasty stuff, particularly on the reality show. But of course, you know, any skin or sexual content is just completely forbidden or, you know, wrong. Yeah, I did like that a lot. I think that was good. Um, I've got one more quick one, and this was just... uh... (laughs) It had to be quoted. Um, Jesse already kind of mentioned that Stephen Graham Jones, uh, at least in name, appears in the book. And um, I think I'm going to forever, and I almost want to put this on a t-shirt, um, love this quote. I don't know what an obtuse triangle is, Stephen Graham Jones. <laughs> that, that's hilarious. <laughs> Do you have any more, Jesse? Are we, are we pretty much wrapped up? Um... <clears throat> No, I think I'm done with quotes, but um, actually, I think this came up on social medias the other day because Nick Corpon, other other friend of us, mentioned something about the character Stephen Graham Jones in the book and being poor at math. And there's he has that story where he talks about it's like the future and he talks about all the great problems of the world have been solved and math is one of them. Like, math is this thing that just doesn't exist anymore like oh yeah we, we figured that all out it's it's done it's solved <laughs> i love it <laughs> which i'd like to live in that world oh that's so funny too because paul teaches math to high schoolers that's his like day job <laughs> are we ready to to do some wrap-ups and give out some stars uh yeah you yeah. should start this who's gonna do their first wrap-up I'll go. I'll, t- I'll take a stab at it. <clears throat> Perfect. And, okay, cool. Okay. So, Head Full of Ghosts went in with high expectations based solely on the thought that it's a sec- secular exorcism story. So, really not a lot to go on. Just high expectations and hoping that, please God, don't be like a million exorcism movies I've seen and just couldn't tolerate. Which is really unfair, actually, to think of a book, any book. But I was completely blown away. <clears throat> the characters, the characters are. You guys already talked about how awesome Mary is, this child, this uh, this kid, and how her world is created so perfectly as an eight-year-old. Like the the elaborate security system, the mom doesn't even care, but she thinks it's it's like the most important thing ever, and I have to explain this away. So really well done there. Um, her sister and the questioning of whether there's any supernatural element that actually exists or whether this is mental illness or even just the reality of a teenager changing it, everything ties together so neatly. And Paul did that thing where he brought in real life stories like the molasses flood. I don't know how much of what in the book is true, but I know that's a, that's a real story that actually happened. And the creep factor is probably at spinal tap levels here. So I loved everything about it, and I would, I'm actually going to go five stars on this one. Very good. I like it. Livius, would you like to do the honors of going next? I would. Um, I also only pretty much knew that it was about um, someone who – I'm just going to say it. I thought it was just about someone who was possessed. I didn't know, even know there was an if, and I knew there was a reality show, and I was worried. And even, 
starting this book as endeared as I was to Mary. And I guess I didn't really, this didn't come off so much, but I was really endeared to Marjorie too. I really liked her even with like the weird shit that was going on with her. I still, something about her was, was very, very um, just likable for me, but I started seeing kind of what Jesse mentioned, which was, this is becoming the exorcist. Like, this is what it's becoming. Now we're going to get a priest involved, you know? And then the reality show shit happened, and then it got even kind of weirder, and I, I lost all thought of that. But I, I kind of saw it heading in, in the general direction, to be fair, of how all exorcism, and I was going to say books, but I'm kind of with Jesse on this. I don't think I've read a book about exorcism or about possession or exorcisms. Um, but, you know, it's a slow progression. It gets worse and worse, and then the only thing we can do is call the priest. Um, none of that matters because this book is so unique in its scope um, and just so well written and, and you know, twisty turny enough and, and just not real predictable. And I mean, everything from because it's really told from three points of view. It's told um, we get some stuff from today, Marjorie, while she's talking to the, the writer who's going to, to write the nonfiction book about this. Then we get what by far is the best parts of the story, which are eight-year-old Mary talking, you know, doing, doing her thing. Um, and then we have these outside blog posts that show up every now and then, which, which lend, I don't know, another look at mostly the reality show portion of it. But so we're really seeing this through kind of um, three different perspectives, which I thought was really um, great too. I, I can't, so I'm going to go with Jesse on this. And it's like, I can't find a fucking fault with this book. This book is pretty much close to perfect. So um, definitely five stars. I would probably give it a little more than five, but I am limited. So we're going to go with five on this one. I'm going to retroactively give Swallowing <laughs> a Donkey's Eye an additional half star. Is that I can do? <laughs> Don't make me go back and look and see what you actually gave. I have no idea, but it's getting another half star on top of whatever I gave it the first time around. Because I think I may have had a little room there. Wow. Um, I guess it's my turn. Uh, because of everything those guys said that I just fully agree with, I'm going to try and make this as brief as possible. Um, I had read now on the uh, advanced copy that actually thanks Jesse uh, uh, for being generous enough to give Livius and I both. Uh, he got basically just like a fucking truckload delivered at his house or something. <laughs> Can we talk about this? <laughs> let's let's talk about this for a second. <laughs> We are an award-winning book review <laughs> podcast with 250 episodes under our belt. We published a story by the author of this. Unable, unable, and I know Paul said, "Hey, I forwarded your, your information, and and you know that should get we got jack shit." Jesse, and if I'm getting this correct, when we talked about it the other night, one showed up, then another one showed up, then a third one showed up. So fucking Paul Tremblay wanted Jesse to read the. <laughs> He was like making no, like I'm the publisher is just going to keep sending them until I fucking see somewhere online that just is like, I think I'm going to read this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give all the credit to Ferg because I mean, let's face it. I'm a really, really big name in book reviewing, obviously. And I owe all of that to, to Ferg from our days past and fucking Ferg had to buy a copy because he just posted that he got it from Amazon the other day. Ferg got zero fucking copies. They all went to you. <laughs> you know, okay. <laughs> since you brought up, since you brought up the arc, I have to bring up the, the other thing that I, you and I talked about briefly um, on the back of the arc. There's the marketing campaign section. Yeah. And it says author appearances in Virginia. Appearances, plural, and just Virginia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all I can all I can think of is that this is the most directed marketing campaign ever. They're like, all right, listen, we have three advanced reader copies. What should we do with them? They're like, just send them to Jesse. All right, we're gonna set up some appearances. We're gonna do like a dozen appearances for this book. Where do you want them? Just send them all to fucking Virginia. We want Jesse, and we want the state of Virginia to fucking love this book. And if we can get that, if we can get that, we're going to make a shit ton of money. Jesse and Virginia are the swing states of, of book reading, apparently. So aspiring authors, I'm going to tell you, if you want to have phenomenal success and what so far is the five-star review and I, I just have a feeling that rob is not going to, to taint that number <laughs> copies of your book to jesse and pepper 
the fucking state of Virginia would be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I have to follow that with my 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 wrap up. Uh, <laughs> well, once again, thanks Jesse for the book. Um, <laughs> let me collect myself. You need you need a moment there. Oh, I will give you, and this this might need to be off the record. I will give you my brief brief review of the book itself physically since i have both versions in my hand the advanced one and the hardcover so i know paul got got a pretty good deal which he rightly deserved and i really kind of wish i could contact william morrow and tell them i really wish you would have taken the extra money you spent to get deckel edging on this book and just given that money to paul because really these pages suck (laughs) Dude, do they charge more for deckled edging? Because I always was under the impression that was like the shit that was left over from other books. I just, yeah, it, you could be right. I'm just, I'm making an assumption here because it's like this, it's supposed to be fancier looking, right? Like aesthetically. So I assume that costs more. Mm. I'm just, I'm just totally against deckled edging. That's all. Apparently. All right. So here's my thoughts on this book. Um, uh, Honestly, the the approach I was coming at was um, with the my memory of swallowing a donkey's eye, which is more satirical and um, dystopian and everything, and and much more lighthearted. So I'm not accustomed to the horror writer Paul Tremblay, and so um, going into this book, um, it was a little bit of a of a of a shift, uh, a little bit in my mind at the beginning. But within 20, 30 pages, I was just completely locked in and. Um, the story just, just had me from the beginning. The characters, uh, were just so great. The, the, the Mary character, like, like Olivia's and, and Jesse both said, all the characters in the book were just pitch perfect. And, um, what I really liked was, uh, motorcycles. I really like the motorcycles. See, now your voice is perfectly of course while the cycles are going by. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I like how uh, he pulled off such great horror and creepiness, which I hope that we that came through at least a little bit in our quotes. Um, he pulled off such excellent innocence and, and purity with with the Mary character, um, and and we didn't talk about it yet. But and I and I don't think this is a spoiler at all because, uh, you know, it's a possession story, it's a horror story, all that kind of stuff. The ending was just so emotionally powerful that um like i don't think he could have done a better job of ending the book and i will admit i did tear up a little bit because of how you know how serious it was and everything um are you talking oh sorry are you talking about the first ending like the ending of eight-year-old mary's story the ending of eight-year-old mary's story yeah yeah that that kind of wrecked everything in me it killed me, dude. That I mean, I don't know. Livius doesn't have a heart, so he was probably fine, but um, it that just killed me. Like the whole thing just killed me inside. So, um, Paul just fucking knocked it out of the park. It's an excellent book, and um, I, I think that you know any writer could aspire to do half as well as he did in this book, and it would then that would be a great book. So, I agree with you guys. Five stars. You know, you know who I feel bad for who. The next author we review. Oh shit! I didn't even think of that. God damn it, man! <laughs> there is a next author. Yeah. We're gonna review. We're gonna review a book again. Yeah, we're gonna do this again three weeks in a row. Um, and wh- what's what is the next one? Who am I feeling bad for? Uh, Rob Hart and his debut novel, New Yorked. Rob Hart. I don't know if you just listened to the review that we just did. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's kind of like reading after David James Keaton. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's yeah, a, it's a tough tough act to follow. Or like challenging David James Keaton when you read before him. <laughs> well, that's just a fool's errand. <laughs> that's yeah. And that yeah. fool, Anthony Neil Smith. <laughs> yeah, that happened. You can go back and listen to our review of AWP twenty fifteen. And, uh, and understand what we're talking about. So outside of uh, that, um, what do you guys got going on? 
I, I think the world stopped for a minute so that Jesse and I, and I hope you too, Livius, uh, uh, watched the, the the first episode of the new season of Hannibal the other day, Thursday? Thursday? Yeah, um, Thursday. Yeah, um, y- you know, it's sitting. It's sitting on my DVR. <sighs> patiently waiting. <sighs> so you're the bullet point that didn't watch Hannibal. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. I didn't watch Hannibal. I um, I uh, I'm going to. There's even a chance that I'm going to do that tonight after we're done with this. There's also a good chance that I'm just gonna fall asleep because I've been up since five a.m. and didn't sleep well last night. So. so so you don't know what my um my new cover image on Facebook is. No, as a matter of fact, I I'm gonna go look, but uh, I don't remember seeing that. Oh, dude. Okay, let me, I just let me get this straight here. You you didn't watch Hannibal. Like, you have not yet watched. I have not seen season three, episode one of Hannibal. I am caught up through the end of season two. Okay. Can, do you know how many times I've watched the first episode of season three already? <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you break double digits yet? Because I'm at about three. No, I have not broken double digits. I'm at four currently. Is is this is your cover letter? Is this a screenshot from the new X Files? Is that is that Scully? Oh come on, man, you motherfucker! <laughs> come on, Scully you. doesn't dress that stylishly. Let's be honest here. Yeah. It's been a long time. She may have gotten some fashion sense. It's got to be Delia, man, and an umbrella. So here's the thing. I just want to say a really quick thing about the 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 show. It's uh, Hannibal and Bedelia have fled to Europe, and so. My quick observation is uh, that this episode felt different in as much as it's removed from the instability of Will Graham's character. So really it feels very predatory and like just very fierce. Um, But with such like an incredible backdrop, um, everything about Europe that they film is just beautiful. And so there's like this, this contrast of beauty with like kind of an unchecked, uh, predatory um, like danger. That's how I feel about it. I think, Rob, I think you and I and our, our friend Misty might have touched on this because, you know, we've been talking about it nonstop for how many weeks now? Like, <laughs> <laughs> since it before it started. But everything you said I agree with, but I also think Will Graham is hanging over the entire episode and probably will be for the <clears throat> for all of the season we don't see him however long that ends up being because and if this is spoilery well whatever everyone should have seen this by now but in the last episode of season two will tells hannibal that he already changed him and i think we're seeing what that has done to hannibal now possibly i can see that he's definitely much more reflective about things he thinks about the impact of what he does more i think than in the previous seasons he seems a little more reckless too, or maybe he's just being more cocky. I don't know. Yeah. Well, or maybe we're just seeing it and we didn't before. That could be too. I've also not seen any of Penny Dreadful. That's part of the, my rest of my contribution to this conversation. What the well, fuck? just had a heart attack. <laughs> Dude, Penny Dreadful is quickly growing to be one of my favorite shows. I um I'm I'm going to I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it and I'm gonna watch it soon. I mean I've seen I saw season one. I just haven't seen any of the new season. So I'm six episodes behind or whatever. Jesse, next time you see Josh Hartnett walk in the streets of Minneapolis, give him a good old high five for me. I will. All right. Um couple other items that we have. We already mentioned our next episode is uh Rob Hart's New York. Good luck, Rob. Um uh oh, oh, an update. Uh, I, I wish I had the, like like the the news like we have an update. Um, a campaign was begun online by Nick Corpon, who has already been mentioned um, in this episode. Congratulations to Nick, by the way, who is now part of Team Deckard. For anybody who is not aware, Station Deckard mm-hmm. has picked up Nick Corpon as a client alongside other clients that we love, like. Um, everyone pretty much everyone i was just gonna say yeah there's there's yeah matthew mcbride and um the, some other names that elude me <laughs> Decker, Mary Corpon, uh, uh dan o'shea fucking john Hunter jacobs uh i think it's frank bill frank bill yes yeah here's 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 a peek behind the curtain 
this is what happens when we're off the air. I go, Rob, Rob, that guy, that guy that wrote that book we love. <laughs> and he's like, which guy? I'm like, the tall guy with the mustache. And then Rob throws out a name. So I could picture all of these people, <laughs> but could not, could not put a name to them at all. So, so far, the, bra- the, the camera that points directly to Livius's brain hasn't been hooked up yet, so I can't see these images. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how we have conversations about things. Um, so um, congratulations to Nick. But at any rate, he started a small but effective campaign to have us review the new 50 shades book. And it appears now we're already in discussion with Brandon Teets to do something um, during our lazy summer of podcasting where we're not going to review any books. Well, guess what? We added a book, the new 50 shades guest starring Brandon Teets who um, a little, little past due on Brandon being on the show with us. I think, I mean, we had the reading when he was here in Chicago, but just as a guest. So um, good timing for this. And uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Oddly enough, Rob, do you have thoughts? Um, I just keep picturing Nick Corpon in a Canadian tuxedo with uh, wet, <laughs> wet, wet pants, and then punching him, and then him falling over, and then taking a drink. I think that's what I'm picturing right now. Also, congratulations to Nick Corpon because Liv- Livius is finally pronouncing his name right. <laughs> Congratulations to Nick for not. Good job, buddy. Well done. Um, There was something else I want to talk about, and my peek behind the curtain alluded to that. I have read in the last week the first three prequels um, for the Dorothy Must Die um, young adult series, and uh, I'm going to talk about them maybe next episode a little bit. Good stuff, though. Daniel Page, you're doing okay. You're, you're You're doing God's work. Doing okay. Yeah. That reminds me one time I'm uh <laughs> is that like I can't remember where I was, but it was like a drive through for something, probably coffee. And um uh my tattoo the booked tattoo is on my left arm, so it's the arm that hangs out my driver's side window. Um so if I'm handing something to someone or accepting something from someone in a drive through, they're probably gonna see the tattoo. And um what did the guy say to me? He he's like, Oh yo, you get uh, something about the tattoo and I said and he said that's decent, but he said it in kind of like a slang way, like decent means like it's really cool. Um, but I was like, does he know what decent means? And then I wanted to be like, hey, your service? Decent. I actually was scrolling through, completely unrelated to anything, I was scrolling through Facebook at work, and uh, I saw that you had changed your, your profile picture back. Yeah. And I go... Thank God, because this is the best picture of Rob ever. It's like show, of course. It's like this is my co-host Rob. You know, finally changed his picture best the best back to the best picture he's ever taken. And they're like, "What's that on his arm?" <laughs> so I'm like, "It's a tattoo." So I had to zoom in. I'm like, "You see where it says book?" And they're like, "Kind of." And I was like, "Yeah, it's a thing." And they just you know, you're a weirdo with some kind of arm disease. But but decent, dude. Decent. Yeah, yeah. That story was decent. Yep. Can we? Uh, one more thing. And then we'll uh, we'll let you guys um, get back to whatever it is that you're doing when you're not listening to us. Hey, we have a newsletter now. Now, in the last episode, we asked people to sign up, and we did not have a lot of signups. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. Um, if you're the kind of person who's listening from your computer, you're probably on the page where you have to do this. Over to the right-hand side, click the link that says sign up for our newsletter. In exchange, you will get a, a, um, uh, a, a your choice, Moby, PDF, or EPUB, I believe, Rob? Yeah. Version of the book anthology. Now, if you got the paper copy, let me remind you, there are two very, very important stories that do not appear in the paper copy. And they are stories by Pela Villa, our friend and editor of the book anthology, and Rob Olson, the guy that does 50% of the talking on this podcast. So I strongly encourage you to do that. Um, we're, we're, we're not going to demand it yet. We're still at the encouraging part. So please do that. What you'll get is probably about an email a week, um, starting soon with new episodes that go up. Um, and that's it. Maybe some other news and maybe we'll do some fun stuff. Maybe we'll just put some exclusive stuff in there. I don't know. We'll figure it out, but you should do that. And you should probably do it right now. As a matter of fact, if you listen to what I said, you've already done it. Cause that's how quickly it happens. You already got your book. You're already reading it. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, that's, um, that's it. That's, uh, that's pretty much all I've got. Jesse, thank you so much for being uh, more generous than William Morrow, who sent their entire um, 
stash of arcs to you that you were able to distribute them somewhere where they would be great use. Thanks again for having me on. Um, hopefully we can get you back soon for maybe an extravaganza spectacular or something like that. Only if you get Amanda too. Oh, it's, it's, it's fucking it's, guys making demands now. Do you hear this? <laughs> yeah, I'll do this. Only if Amanda does it too. And hey, I'm, gonna, can... I'm gonna need grapes, but just the green <laughs> ones. This guy's getting stacks of books delivered from the fucking like big six publishers. Here yeah, we are, fucking like begging for an ebook that's not from NetGalley. <laughs> oh no, I, I don't. I don't like grapes unless they're you know liquefied and fermented. <laughs> Great, there you go. Rob, can you start fermenting some fucking grapes so we can have them on again? <laughs> if I <laughs> try to ferment grapes, Jesse will probably die drinking them because it's not my... Uh, I'm better at drinking than I am uh, creating. There you go. Somebody has to be the consumer, right? It's important to have good consumers, not just good um, content creators. That's right. We live We live by this, but this motto. We need someone else to make great stuff so we have jobs. Exactly. <laughs> All right, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, any final parting thoughts, either of you? Excellent. I'm Rebelson. <laughs> I'm Olivia Snyder. Keep reading.